What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. My name is Nader Musubizadeh. I'm the chief executive of Oxford Analytica. And let me also add my words of welcome to all of you here for what we hope will be um, a very lively and interesting exchange on 9-11, 10 years on, the world we made. Tonight, what we're going to do for you is to interpret the decades since 9-11, talk about how it has helped shift and accelerated certain shifts in the global power balance, how it's affected the major power centers, be they Moscow, China, the United States, Britain, and the Middle East, and what that will mean for the decade to come. To begin this evening's discussion, uh, we are very privileged uh, to ask David Milband to start us off. David, as all of you know, is the former UK Foreign Secretary from 2007 to 2010, is currently the MP for South Shields, and we are very privileged that David has decided to pursue a number of his international interests through an affiliation with Oxford Analytica as a senior global advisor. David will start us off by setting the broader context for this very complex and volatile world, a world in which power has shifted immensely, where China, of course, is a rising power, and we will talk about that with Rana Mitter, but also a world where we have seen power fragment in lots of ways, power, capital, and ideas, all fragmenting in a way that I think of as an archipelago world. David, please. Thank you very much, uh, Nada. Thank you very much, Nada, and thank you to all of you for giving up uh, time to come and have a, I think, the first discussion about the post-9-11 world. A summary of what I'm going to say is as follows, that this has been the most traumatic decade for the West since the 1930s, that the reasons are to do with security, to do with economics, they're reasons that are moral as well as practical, and that to restore confidence and stability of any kind is going to be immensely challenging over the decade ahead. I think of the last decade as really a decade of disorder, a decade of disorientation. And 9-11 was the trigger for that decade of disorder. But it's not the only factor Someone famously said that 9-11 sent the kaleidoscope into flux. And the kaleidoscope hasn't settled, not just because it's taken 10 years to chase down bin Laden, but because 
The decade since 9-11 has seen Iraq and all of its uh, components. It's also seen the worst global financial crisis in 80 years. It's seen a remarkable shift in the economic balance of power that Nader uh, referred to. So this is about more than 9-11, but 9-11 was the start of it. And if you try and think back through history, how do you get order in the international system? If this has been a decade of disorder, how previously was order established? There are really three ways in which order has been established in the international system over the last uh, few hundred years. One is through a dominant power, a hegemonic power, an empire. The second is through the balance of power. And the third is through the sharing of sovereignty. Those are really the, th the only three ways in which order has been established. And if you think about the post-Second World War period, you actually had all three going on. You had both a dominant power, the United States, you had a balance of power with the Soviet Union, and you had the growth of shared sovereignty. Now, what's happened in the last decade is that America has been on the back foot, fiscally and economically, uh, but also in security terms. The balance of power hasn't existed because the rising powers are precisely that, rising. They're not risen, they're rising powers. So in those circumstances, perhaps it's not surprising that we've had a decade of disorder or a decade of disorientation. And what I want to try and sketch for you is why has this decade of disorder come about? And there are five reasons I want you to think about that I think are, make this period different. The first is it's been an asymmetric decade. What do I mean by that? I mean by that that a place of ungoverned space, the badlands of the Afghan-Pakistan border, could become the place to threaten the most governed and ordered societies in the world. I mean, it's asymmetric, not just because roadside bombs can push back armies, but because a non-governmental organization, Al-Qaeda, could send the most powerful country in the world into convulsions. Point two, Al-Qaeda has represented what I call an enforced detour from the drive to build up the governing institutions for a 21st century interdependent world. It's been a detour fiscally, financially, in terms of blood and uh, treasure, but it's also been a detour because it's sapped so much attention. Why do I say enforced detour? Because I think that we had no choice but to confront what Al-Qaeda was and is. But I think it's very important. One of the things I disagreed with about the notion of a war on terror, I mean, one problem with it was it grouped all terrorist groups under the Al-Qaeda banner. But it also suggested that the form of terrorism we were facing was the same as Baden-Meinhof or the Red Brigades or the IRA. And actually, I think Al-Qaeda is a different global phenomenon, was and is a different global uh, phenomenon. I think that the Taliban did need to be taken out of Kabul because the space that they were guaranteeing for Al-Qaeda was very dangerous. But some very serious mistakes uh, were made. The first was that the vanquished who were willing to live within the political system, those remnants of the Taliban, who saw themselves as politicians, not militants, were kept out of the Bonn Conference in 2002. And everything we know about history tells you that if the vanquished are kept out, it's a recipe for trouble. Funnily enough, Condoleezza Rice, of all people, said to me, in, uh, who, who was integrally involved with the Bonn Conference, she said, uh, on reflection, that the attempt, it was worse than ironic, that Afghanistan, one of the most decentralized countries in the world, had one of the most centralized political systems imposed on it, with executive authority vested in Kabul, but Afghanistan is a country of 40,000 villages and valleys. And tragically, 
When the Taliban were driven into Kandahar and offered to sue for peace, they were actually driven out into Pakistan where they regrouped. So mistakes have been made in the political domain rather than the military domain, something I want to come back to. So second point, there's been an enforced detour for the West. Third point, it's been a decade of two halves. We've been concerned with security. The rest of the world has been getting much richer. Ten years ago, uh, Brazil, uh, India and China represented 4% of global trade. Today, it's 12%. 63% of economic growth in the last 10 years has come from emerging economies. So third reason there's a sense of disorder is that the economic template has shifted. Fourth reason, America is a reluctant empire. If you go back to Bill Clinton's last State of the Union message in uh, 2000, he said, look, this has been the best decade in American history. We've done amazing things. We're not threatened abroad. And now our task is to focus at home. George Bush ran for election in 2000. Condi Rice wrote a piece saying, America will not be the world's policeman. Barack Obama, in his first inaugural address, said, the nation building I want to do is at home. He repeated that in uh, his speech last week about uh, Afghanistan. And that's a, a fourth reason why it's been a decade of disorder, which I think we should uh, come back to and uh, try and work our way through. And the fifth reason is there's a fundamental divide in the world among politicians and academics about whether an interdependent world needs new rules and institutions that embrace new principles of shared sovereignty for their governance. The rules of 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia, that have governed international law for the last 350 years, assert the primacy and sovereignty of the nation state. And I am a very strong believer in the political legitimacy, the unique political legitimacy of the nation state. But I also believe that you can't run an interdependent world on the basis that there's unfettered sovereignty of nation states. If you do that, carbon emissions go out of control, human rights get abused, and the international system is ungoverned and undergoverned. And that's what you've got at the moment. So those are five reasons why I think this has been a decade of disorder. And I was trying to think, what's the right sort of metaphor to, to get this? And then I was in Washington, and Madeleine Albright, who was Secretary of State in the 90s, I spoke to her, and she came up with, a, I think, a really good point. She said, look, in the, nine, in, the, in the Cold War era, foreign policy was like steering a ship along the Panama Canal. You kept your eyes straight, and you just tried not to bump against the sides. In the 1990s, foreign policy was like being in the English Channel. You had water all around you, but you could see the land on each side, 26 miles. In the modern world, we're out on the high seas, and no one can see the landmass. And that's, I think, a good summary of how it feels for a lot of politicians today. What do we do about it? I just want to leave you with four quick reflections. The first speaks to something that Richard Holbrook, the former um, peacemaker in the Balkans, remarkable peacemaker and a uh, remarkable advocate of, for a change in Afghanistan and Pakistan. One of the things he said to me before he died was that one of the terrible legacies of the last 10 years was what he called the militarization of diplomacy. And what he was essentially saying was that the military calculus had become preeminent in too much thinking that should be the realm of politics and diplomacy. And in fact, we need the opposite, given the threats that we face. Even though the threats are military, a lot of the answers to them are going to be, have to be uh, political. Uh, second uh, point, when we talk about a balance of power in the future, we're going to have to talk about people, not just states. And you can see that in the Middle East at the moment. That deals between Western leaders and leaders in the Arab world uh, will only stick if they have the consent of the people. 
And the coalitions of the future aren't just going to be between states, they're going to have to include people, reflecting this extraordinary shift in the balance of power between organizations, public and private, and the people. And the fact that President Assad, the current President Assad's father could slaughter 20,000 people and no one really know about it, but now you can watch on, the, on your TV or on your computer from someone's mobile phone what the current President Assad's forces are doing in Syria tells you a lot about how power has shifted. The fact that Robert Mugabe's attempts to rig the election in Zimbabwe were overcome by people taking pictures of the results on each of 9,000 polling stations around Zimbabwe and sending them to a special server in South Africa tells you about the shift in, the, in power between organizations and uh, individuals. So the second thing is coalitions of consent are gonna have to be about people as well as states. Third point, I haven't got time to talk about it, for the first time in 200 years, Resource scarcity rather than resource plenty defines our age. It's a really big thing. Nada will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the figure is the rise in non-oil commodity prices in the last 10 years has been as big as the rise in non-oil commodity prices in the Second World War. In other words, we're in the equivalent of a war situation when it comes to uh, non-oil commodity prices, and you know what's happened to the price of oil. Fourth and final point, the West is going to have to rediscover the joys of multilateralism. It's a really tough point, this. And I foresee time now where there's a backlash against globalization and there'll be a backlash against international institutions. But I believe it's actually going to come back because the folly of trying to run the modern world just according to the interests of independent nation states and not about shared interests, I think, is going to come up uh, into big problems. Um, I think I've used up my time, so I just want to finish on the following point, which troubles me and, and interests me. In 1908, a man called Norman Angel wrote a book called The Great Illusion. And he set out in the first paragraph of that book to take on what he said was the myth of the last 50 years, writing in 1908. And the myth was that military expansionism could guarantee economic security. He wanted to dismember that myth. His argument was economic expansion can guarantee your military security. In other words, he inverted it. Now, it turned out he was tragically wrong six years later with the First World War. The First World War proved him wrong. Why was he wrong? Because the truth is, economics without politics is as dangerous as politics without economics. And the politics was completely missing from his analysis. And I think that if we're going to take any lessons from the Arab Spring, the first should be that the primacy of politics is something that speaks to every person in every part of the world. And if we take that seriously, we've got a chance of building a more humane and fairer world in the future. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank, thank you, David, very much. Why don't we move on? Um, we have in the question of the Arab Spring that you mentioned, clearly one of the most important shifts uh, that are going on. Uh, to help understand what's been going on in the Middle East, uh, we will turn to Michael Crawford, uh, who joined Oxford Analytica as a senior global advisor also this year, uh, after a very distinguished 30-year career with the British government uh, on national security uh, and diplomatic issues with postings in most of the uh, capitals that uh, have driven a lot of the change in the Middle East, uh, as well as here in London. Uh, we'd love to hear your observations on what we're seeing and what it will lead to. Well, thank you very much. It's um, tough business following a uh, former foreign secretary in full intellectual flight. <laughs> what I would like to do is to just pick up uh, 
the point he made at the end about the role of politics and also, of course, about the Arab Spring. And the area that I want to cover this evening is that between Morocco and Pakistan. Now, 9-11 was the day that the world froze in shock. I think all of us here will remember that. And for several countries, it ushered in a violent era, extremely violent era, which gave primacy to the use of military and paramilitary force. Today, the Middle East is again in shock, but confronted by a rather different phenomenon, and one which I think actually has a, a greater capacity for change even than 9-11. It is driven not by a small vanguard of extremists committed to a visionary ideology and nihilistic methods, but by the man and the woman on the street seeking political, social, and economic justice. And it is the regimes that are initiating the violence. This uh, revolt of the citizen, supported by so new social networking and other media, may be the harbinger of a different world, and one which I think dictators across the planet should be studying rather carefully. So how do we go from 9-11 to the Arab Spring? Well, I think 9-11 established the politics of threat. The US neocons who decided to invade Iraq believed it would help to break down, destroy, entrenched patterns of power across the Middle East. But actually, this was, uh, it was a counterproductive uh, mood, move. You have regimes which, if anything, became more repressive and more autocratic, particularly as they worried about the spillover from Iraq and Afghanistan. And they stalled on political reform talk, which I remember well, was all about US unilateralism, the Sunni-Shia divide, Al-Qaeda, terrorism, insurgency. This was a political environment consumed with threats. And rulers, I think, developed a, a narrow, defensive, and essentially tactical mindset. And they became so obsessed with one plot that they completely missed a much greater one, which actually did for some of them in short order. The Arab Spring did not come out of a clear blue sky. Dangerous demographics and social and economic mess was there for all to see. But governments had lost touch with their people, particularly with young people, and elites fell back on their core constituencies based around ethnic, sectarian, or other loyalties. 
and they didn't pay any attention to the interests of the wider population. In weak unitary states, regimes, governments gradually became weaker. Look at Lebanon, Somalia, Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Now everyone talks, of course, about the shift of power, transfer of power from west to east. But actually, in the part of the world that I'm talking about, the transfer of power was from governments to political non-state actors, David's referred to. Hamas, Hezbollah, Jaysh al-Mahdi in Iraq, Taliban in Afghanistan, and say, Lashkar Taiba in Pakistan. Now, these organizations, which I call mezzanine rulers because they insert themselves between government and the people deeply entrenched in local communities, using the label, the language of resistance, and used by some governments as deniable instruments for terrorism and insurgency. Now, these organizations, of course, benefited greatly from uh, the loss of government control over the media, from new technologies, roadside bombs and other things, and, of course, from the failure of governments to uh, address the interests of the ordinary citizen. But, of course, it's ironic because these mezzanine rulers ended up mirroring the governments that they tried to uh, supplant. Now, of course, after 9-11, we were all obsessed with the issue of ungoverned space. Perhaps didn't devote quite as much attention to misgoverned countries. So we had these uh, rulers who had uh, entrenched themselves and consolidated their power. And I think we forget that about a year ago, we had, um, well, the neocons had faded from the scene. Uh, Obama had arrived. We had a uh, massive economic crisis. We had what seemed like financial meltdown and furthermore, general loss of confidence. And if you leave aside one or two legacy issues like North Korea or Iran or Afghanistan or Pakistan, actually no one was telling, no country, no regional body was telling governments around the Middle East uh, how they ought to be running their political and economic systems. And this was a tremendous chance for them to address issues of governance. But regimes didn't, of course. But the man and the woman on the street did seize that opportunity. And they, of course, were, uh, had been pretty impatient. So you ended up with uh, the citizens looking for political, social, economic justice, trying to get rid of corruption, and introducing a new form of politics, I think. Now, whether in the end the politics of empowerment will supplant the politics of threat and the politics of communal identity, the months and the years ahead will show. One concluding thought. David has spoken about ungoverned space. Actually, I think the ungoverned space that has proved to be just as important has been the ungoverned space of the internet. 
probably a reminder. It's time for me to finish. <laughs> the ungoverned space of the internet, and I think how we exploit and uh, manage the global commons, that is to say, all those phenomena, if you like, which are open to everybody in the international community, like cyberspace, how we deal with those will be as important as how we control uh, destructive technologies for uh, the creation of a better and less destructive world. This has, above all, been an extraordinary decade uh, for technology and its impact on international affairs. But if we look across forward to the next decade, I'd say we've seen nothing yet. Michael, thank you very much. Philip Mudd joined Oxford Analytica as a senior global advisor also in the last year after uh, a long service uh, with the US government uh, in the region, in the Middle East, focusing on terrorism and counterterrorism issues uh, in an analytical uh, and, and uh, diplomatic capability. Philip, give us your thoughts on this decade of terrorism and counterterrorism after clearly the most uh, epical event uh, of terrorism and uh, where you see this future threat pattern and the politics of threat that Michael talked about taking us. Thank you, and thanks for having me. I arrived this morning from Saudi Arabia, so if I go face down, I'd appreciate the phone more. <laughs> Noise is, be is better. Um, like every good government bureaucracy, the White House doesn't like to say they have a lot of people on staff, so they get people like me on loan. I was at the White House at the executive office building on 911 on loan from CIA. And like every good bureaucrat, I was having coffee. <laughs> and I remember coming back and seeing the, f it's not a joke. <laughs> coming back and seeing the first plane going into the building and saying, that must be a, some fellow in a Cessna, a small aircraft who made a mistake. And when the second aircraft went in, we were evacuated. And I went out on the streets that were chaos. It looked like a movie. I'll never forget it. I'll just, there was no sense of anger, at least I didn't have any sense and my friends didn't. There was a sense initially of chaos. And then as the day went on and I sat with friends of mine and watched buildings fall, a tremendous sense of sadness that so many children might grow up without ever seeing their parents again. But I thought this was a terrorist attack, which was a fundamental mistake. This was an attack by revolutionaries who wanted to sponsor a global movement of people who thought and acted as they did. I returned to CIA after actually going to Bonn, Germany as, the, as a CIA, I shouldn't talk about this, as a CIA person at the, at the conference that, that put Karzai in government. And actually in Bonn, at a peace conference, had an Afghan, this is sort of tells you something, had an Afghan warlord walk up to me at the Bonn peace conference and asked because he knew I was a CIA guy for AK-47s. This was not a good start. <laughs> That also is not a joke. <laughs> but I remember going back to CIA, and in 2002, when I returned, the war obviously was, was at its height, or pardon me, the global campaign. Did you catch that? I, I made a mistake. The global campaign against terrorism, not the GWAT, not the global war. And I sat there. I was the briefer for then Director Tenet, CIA Director Tenet, every night, and I briefed him every night on threat. We had something called the small group with the CIA director, government bureaucracy, 40 people in the room, 
every night and talked about things like threat and then transitioned to talk about where we were in Afghanistan and where we were elsewhere around the world. The threat then was the revolutionary group of al-Qaeda. What I talked to him about every night was technical information, things like phone intercepts and human source information that talked about what al-Qaeda wanted to do in places like America or Europe or Indonesia or the Philippines. I didn't fully understand yet that we were talking about a revolution. And I noticed in 2003, especially with attacks in Riyadh in May of 2003, and then watching the attacks in Bali by the group Jamaa Islamiyah, and watching what was going on in Western Europe, and watching Al-Qaeda like-minded people infiltrate the southern Philippines, that we had started with a revolutionary group that used the attacks of 9-1-1 to spark a revolution, and now we're transitioning to affiliated groups who wanted to carry the baton of revolution. These were not terrorist groups. These were groups that wanted to use terrorism to spark a global movement. So we transitioned from the tribal areas of Pakistan to the southern uh, archipelago of the Philippines, into Saudi Arabia, and into Britain on 7-7, elsewhere in Western Europe, and into the Horn of Africa and North Africa. And I started realizing our real mission is to blunt a movement, not to defeat a group. And then starting in about 2000, I, I transitioned over to become the senior intelligence advisor to the FBI in 2005. Transitioning into 2008 or 2009, I started realizing that the third and final leg of this revolution was in place. That any group that wants to spark a revolution, especially a small group like Al-Qaeda, can never, never touch every revolutionary itself. It's got to inspire them. And that third group was like-minded. Kids who are not part of Al-Qaeda, who are not part of an affiliated group, but who instead, themselves in a basement, might look at videos of Abu Ghraib, which is one of the most damaging things I ever saw as an intelligence officer. They might look at videos of a dead baby in Palestine, and they might say, as they said in Northern Europe, in Southern Europe, and then in New York, in California, in Miami, in Seattle, in Portland, they said, I believe and I want to be part of the revolution. Revolutions live not by acts of terrorism, but by selling an idea to a global audience. And that global audience started to realize that this idea included the mass murder of Muslim innocents. What happened in Riyadh in 2003 in May? Saudis died. I live in Riyadh 50% of the time. And my friends date the fight against this adversary not from September of 2001, but from May of 2003, because their own died. What happened, by the way, in the 90s in Algeria and Egypt? Counterinsurgency succeeded partly because of brutal security practices and partly because civilians said, I don't want this revolution. What happened in Iraq? We, from a Western optic, will say we had a surge of forces. That's a mistake. What happened is Iraqis said a bunch of foreigners came here. They went after the Americans. That's good. We don't like the Americans. And then they came after us. And we started saying, as Iraqis, we don't want this. We're dying. You guys, the Brits, the Americans, the foreigners are over there. What happened in Jordan? Abu Musab al-Zarqawi sent suicide bombers into wedding parties and lost his support overnight. Time and time again, this adversary overreaches in terms of trying to sell a revolution, and they kill too many innocents. Not American innocents, unfortunately, who don't count. Not British innocents who don't count.
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. But innocence in Algeria, in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, in Jordan, in Iraq, in Pakistan, in Indonesia, and elsewhere around the Islamic world. And if you look at blogs, and if you look at polling data, people now still hate the Americans. I'm proud to be among the hated. <laughs> that is a joke. Um, <laughs> But increasingly, in contrast to where we were nine or ten years ago, that's separate from their views of bin Laden and al-Qaeda. Nine years ago, those two issues were connected. Go after the Americans, we hate them. Now go after the Americans, but we don't support what you're doing because too many innocents died. So as this comet burns itself out, especially now that its spokesman is gone, how do we think about it? And I want to close with a few comments on how we think about it. The first is this issue of unilateralism and multilateralism. In my experience, you have this problem of revolutionary groups when you have two criteria that come together. The first is places where governments can't exercise power. And the second is places where there's elements of extremism. In this case, Islamic extremism. Think of every place where you have a significant problem. The Sahel in Africa, Yemen. Southern Indonesia, Afghanistan, the border area of Pakistan, they all have two criteria. And so one of the questions I think as a former security professional, and I'm only 49, maybe a future security professional, I better not say anything too off the record or else that job will never happen, <laughs> is what happens when you get the rise of a group in an ungoverned space and you know that group represents future threat, think Somalia, but you have nine years of history where a power, that is the United States with its allies, had tremendous credibility nine years ago and now has less credibility to intervene. How do you match those two together? An interest in intervention to protect and a pulling away of intervention because of the lessons of the last nine years in Iraq and Afghanistan, because of economic imperatives, and because of a public in the cities like cities I live in that says, we don't want this anymore, we want jobs. The second is, how we continue to undercut the message, the revolution, the ideology. I find it humorous that the Al-Qaeda guys say they support the Arab Spring. This is a, that is a joke. They hate it. Arab Spring means two things they despise. The first is elections. How can you have an election that might elect someone who doesn't believe that the only true path is the, that is the path the Holy Book offers you? You cannot have an election of secularists who might contravene something that the Holy Book says. And secondly, how can you believe in national borders when the goal of the group is the elimination of national borders to create a caliphate like the caliphate was 13 centuries ago? They're 0 for 2. 
No elections, no national borders. And yet they're out there because they have no option as their ideology declines but to say, we support the will of the people. They do not. They understand both because of Arab Spring, but primarily because they've lost traction as a result of the killing of innocents that their ideology is dying. Third issue among four. What do we say when something else happens? And coming from the other side of the Atlantic, my biggest concern is 10 years ago, the adversary owned the battlefield. Now we own the turf. Al-Qaeda is dying. Al-Qaeda has died partly in Saudi Arabia. Al-Qaeda has been set back on its heels in Indonesia. The question I have is, we, especially across the Atlantic, without the experience of Ireland, without the experience here of 7-7, we will overreact if there's another event. In the face of a revolutionary movement, what we ought to be saying is sweep up the glass, call them criminals, put them in a court, and say, we don't worry about criminals. We worry about the economy. We worry about childhood diabetes. We worry about gun violence among gangs. And I'm afraid we're going to give an adversary that's dying ammunition. And the last thing I want to talk about is civil liberties and what expectations are of security services in an environment of globalization, an environment where we have a lot of information about people, and where public expectations have given me at least two messages. In an era where you can collect a lot of information about people, ensure that those people never do bad things. And as you ensure they never do bad things, don't violate their civil liberties. Thank you. Philip, uh, thank you very much. Listening to all this, I have a feeling, Rana, that if we look 10 years ahead and to your field of speciality, which is China, uh, Rana is the Oxford professor of mod modern Chinese history and is Oxford Analytica's uh, region head and oversees our China and, and Asia analysis. And we're very privileged uh, to have Rana in that role with us. I have a feeling, Rana, that in 10 years, this will all look like a footnote because China's rise and China's dominance both economically, but also increasingly as an alternative political model for much of the emerging world uh, is really going to put a lot of this uh, and make it, well, it will, it will pale before the influence of China. Please, your, your reflections on that. Many, many thanks indeed, Nada, and many thanks to all of my distinguished colleagues who have, uh, again, made this a very hard act to, uh, to follow. When I heard the way in which tonight's discussion debate was framed, it reminded me of a social event that took place at my own institution, Oxford University, just a few months ago, where a colleague of mine, who also works on contemporary Chinese politics, was having dinner with a delegation of senior members of the Chinese Communist Party. And one of the members of the dining group asked my friend, um, what do you think the major problem to face the world in the next 10 years is. He added, I think it's terrorism. And my friend, my colleague, uh, said back to him, well, no, I disagree. I think it's capitalism, which thereby, I think, confirmed the suspicion of many people, and not just those in the Chinese Communist Party, that Oxford Dons are officially more left-wing than the only major ruling Communist Party anywhere in the, uh, in the world. 
But the conversation also crystallised something for me that I think was picked up in a very telling metaphor that David Miliband used a little earlier today, which was moving away from the politics of trying to navigate the Panama Canal uh, to the English Channel to the wide open seas. Because it's very clear to me that the China that has emerged in the 10 years since 9-11 and it is, in fact, I think, 2001 that is a very relevant date here, even though not entirely for the same reasons as uh, my colleagues who work on the Middle East have, uh, have explained. That China has put forward a political model that I think has never been seen anywhere in the world before. It violates the understanding that most of us have grown up with in the last half century or so um, in the Cold War situation, where you either had relatively open, relatively liberal democracies, the United States, Western Europe, and so forth, or relatively very closed, inward-looking totalitarian systems, the Berlin Wall being the obvious example in the communist world. And yes, we know, of course, the West supported many regimes that were pretty brutal and pretty authoritarian, and also oriented towards the Soviet side. There were societies like India, which were much more liberal. But broadly speaking, that division between being liberal and open or being totalitarian and closed was a useful rule of thumb for the Cold War era. But what China in increasingly seems to have brought about is a society that, not quite like the Mad Hatter, but very close, does two impossible things before breakfast, during breakfast, and during major international summits. And that is to be both open and illiberal. It's clearly illiberal. We know that because uh, there's been a great deal of celebration, rightly, of the fact that two major Chinese dissidents have been let out in the last few days, Hu Jia and Ai Weiwei. On the other hand, a liberal society wouldn't have locked them up in the first place. On the other hand, it's very clear that whatever we think about the society, China, it is not the old Soviet Union. Chinese people travel back and forth from China to the West and the rest of the world on an absolutely regular basis. In understanding how a society can simultaneously be very open in terms of its engagement with the outside world, but also highly illiberal, we are dealing with a political model that on the one hand has not been seen widely in the world previously, but on the other hand, I suspect, and I will say I fear, is actually going to become a lot commoner in the near future. And there's one other factor that shapes China, but not explicitly and not exclusively China, and that is the kind of nation that is rising in the world and whose understanding of its contemporary role is very much shaped by its historical um, experience. I am a historian and therefore it's a natural tick to try and claim that nothing is new. It all happened 75 years ago or 350 years ago, but nonetheless I think there is some merit to the argument. So I'd like to do that by just briefly touching on three places in China, each of which I think tells us something slightly different but significant about the world that is to come. What I've just mentioned, the idea of the growing of an open but illiberal society, I think would have happened anyway because of China's growing economic status and also its increasing desire to take a place in international society. But the other thing that was essentially a sort of additional gift to the Chinese in terms of placing themselves in international society was the aftermath of 9-11 and particularly Western policy in 
the Middle East. I say this not in terms of making a judgment myself about that policy. Clearly, there are many views, and they may be debated this evening. But it is, I think, observable that large numbers of societies in the world, including the Chinese, were able to use the way that things turned out in the Middle East to argue that they, and not the liberal West, were where the normal, the central part of international society actually stood. So let's just take briefly the view from Beijing. Um, this is a place which clearly has become a global capital and a centre of influence in a way that wouldn't have been the case even 15 or 20 years ago. But it, was, it is somewhere that is still finding the way in terms of where it wants to be next. And the example that I think really relates to the last 10 years and to the 10 years to come is an outfit that many people in this room will have heard about, but by no means all, perhaps. The so-called Shanghai Cooperation Organization. One of the ways in which this organization, which was founded just before 9-11, in the spring of 2001, has been characterized by some is an, an attempt at an, a, an alternative NATO. It's basically run with headquarters out of Moscow and Beijing, and with the Chinese-Russian joint leadership, it's also taken on board a whole variety of countries within the Central Asian and South Asian region under its membership. The main problem at the moment, to be absolutely frank, is that every single word in its title is misleading. It's not based in Shanghai, it doesn't cooperate very much, and it's extremely disorganized. But it is an attempt to try and put forward an alternative model of what an international organization might be if um, if Washington or London or uh, NATO were not actually involved in that sort of transnational regional grouping. The fact that Beijing is so keen to try this experiment out is a sign that this is not the first, but probably one of many formations that it will attempt to put forward. And that, of course, would enable it to return to the historically informed background of what the historian Josh Fogel has called the Sinosphere. In other words, the idea of a world which sits within the orbit, not necessarily of China as a country, as a sort of imperially dominant society, but rather people who share perhaps Confucian and other values that culturally link those peoples together, historically including Japan, Vietnam, and large parts of the Southeast Asian world. The second brief place that I'd like to take you is the sunny island of Hainan, down on the south coast of China, a place where one can uh, get up to all sorts of exciting activities with uh, nothing but a cocktail shade to uh, cover over your embarrassment. It's become the place for corrupt Chinese officials of choice to go and spend their ill-gotten fiscal incomings. But it's also become the centre for the international conferences that China holds in terms of creating more regional links. Organisations like ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which will take an increasingly important role within the region, are very much being courted by China. Sometimes China manages to annoy them, sometimes China manages to get them involved. But one of the things that China has realised, and its neighbours realised too, is that China is going to be more important in the region and won't go away. And on some of these questions like intervention, like international human rights, it is clear that the voice of the West is being shut out in increasingly uh, noticeable ways, and that we have a lot of work to do if we're going to try and make that previously in the 1990s very universalizing rhetoric have some relevance once again. The final place that I'd like to take you is the southwestern city of Chongqing. Um, if, um, how many people here have heard of Chongqing? Most people? Few people. How many people have been to Chongqing? 
Okay. Well, it was China's old wartime capital. It's got two rivers coming together. It's a very, very exciting place. Not beautiful, but very lively. It's also the biggest city in China. It has 30 million people. It is the showcase for the party leader who is quite possibly the future of what the open and illiberal China that I've described is going to be. He's a man called Bo Xilai. Um, he's typical of the new communist elite because he sent his son to Harrow and then on to Balliol College, Oxford, thereby providing the kind of proletarian background which we expect from the Chinese <laughs> communist uh, party. <laughs> Balliol, very dodgy, I believe, David. Very, all sorts of characters come out of there, it has to be said. <laughs> but he also made waves last year by using the city's SMS technology to send out Maoist messages to everyone on their mobile phones on the eve of the anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. In other words, this is someone with the communist illiberal outlook, but a very strong viewpoint about how to manipulate public opinion in China. And this is something we have to get used to, the idea that public opinion in an authoritarian society matters. There are an awful lot of people in China on the net, for instance. Actually, 310 million, uh, which is, I think, uh, about the same as the population of the United States. Unlike the population of the United States, though, that number is growing by tens of millions every year. These people have strong views about international politics, and those views are generally not liberal. They are now factored in to the way in which Beijing thinks about how it's going to take its foreign policy forward. And if we're not on those blogs, I think Philip mentioned blogs, and it's a very important way of taking the temperature in societies uh, that way, then we're not doing the fullest extent of human intelligence that we can. China is not yet fully formed in the international community. But as I think it was Michael said, and Nada as well, they see the new world as a world of opportunity. I think it's fair to say that they deserve their chance. I think we should be welcoming China into international society. It's a lot better there than it was when Chairman Mao was trying to launch uh, revolutionary nationalism around the world in the 1960s. But we also have to understand a great deal about what kind of actor it is. And that means that outdated categories, even as a historian I would say this, and ways of understanding the world that worked 10 years ago but don't apply to now need to be discarded because otherwise we will find that uh, China has come up from behind us and essentially made its view of the world the one that most people pay attention to. And I still think that an alternative view of the world, not incompatible, but congruent with uh, having a responsible China in the international community, is still well within our grasp if we choose to seize it. Thank you, Rana, very much. This has been a, a fantastic discussion. There's no real, uh, I think, way of thinking about this world to come without understanding Russia. And at Oxford Analytica, we are very privileged to have Sarah Michaels as our uh, chief Russia analyst and our deputy director of analysis, uh, who brings a tremendous sense uh, of understanding of the complexity and the interlinkings of uh, politics, security, and economics, uh, very importantly as well, uh, to the analysis of Russia and where Russia is going and what that means uh, certainly for uh, foreign investors and others looking to understand Russia uh, and how that will impact them. So Sarah, please, your thoughts on this. Thank you very much, Nader, for the gracious introduction. And as, as Nader hinted at, I'm about to do something which tends to make people, you know, sort of cringe and get very uncomfortable, which is I'm about to say some nice things about Russia, or at least some things about Russia that aren't ridiculously pessimistic. So I just need to throw a couple of disclaimers out there just to get our discussion started. And, and again, this is a bit awkward for me, but the first is that I 
used to work for Donald Rumsfeld, like Philip. I'm also a former coffee-drinking bureaucrat. And the second, and again, this is even more embarrassing for me to admit to all of you, is I was born in Texas. And so when you hear me say nice things about Russia, I just want it to be perfectly clear that, you know, nobody here is doing the Kremlin's bidding. I'm not here on behalf of Russia today or anything like that. And that when you go and you look at where Russia stood in 2001, 10 years ago, and you look at where Russia stands today, a sense of optimism about where Russia is going is not only not ridiculous, but, uh, as I'm going to argue, warranted. Nader mentioned the Russian economy. Well, let's start there. Let's start 10 years ago when the Russian economy was valued at $306 billion. That's just a little bit larger. And I should say, I'm going here on $2,010, adjusted for inflation, all of that. But 10 years ago, the Russian economy was worth just over $300 billion, about the same size as Thailand, about the same size as Venezuela, a little bit smaller than Denmark. The Russian economy today is worth $1.5 trillion dollars, the same size as India. So there's something to be proud of if you're sitting in Moscow. Per capita GDP in 2001 was $2,100, on par with economic powerhouses such as Fiji and El Salvador. Today, it's over $10,000, $10,600, putting Russia very firmly in the category of upper middle income countries and on par with countries such as Brazil and Turkey, about which most of us are quite optimistic. People wonder why Putin has retained popularity for so long. And you look at the dramatic growth of the Russian economy, you look at the fact that per capita GDP grew fivefold in just 10 years. Wages kept pace with that. And you say, okay, you know what, maybe this really isn't rocket science. Maybe Putin's political acumen isn't so inexplicable. Maybe it really is about prosperity and not some strange cult of personality or something like that. And that's certainly part of the story. But the other thing I want to address is this concept that the story of Russia and the growth of Russia over the last 10 years is really all about oil, or oil and gas. That's part of the story. Rising oil and rising gas prices, in addition to other commodities such as metals, are a necessary condition for the success of the Russian economy. They are not sufficient, and the rise in oil and gas prices from 2001 to 2011 cannot account for the tremendous growth of the Russian economy. Entire sectors that hardly existed in 2001, in terms of consumer services, in terms of financial sector services, in terms of manufacture of foreign automobiles in Russia, the list goes on and on. Entire sectors were just getting on their feet in 2001. And so the growth of the Russian economy, yes, it's a story of oil and gas, but it's also a story of a dramatic rise in labor productivity and in capacity utilization over the last 10 years, again, relatively short period of time. The really interesting thing, though, and again, remember, 10 years ago, Putin had just come into office. He'd just been in office for about, uh, about a year and a half, two years. The interesting thing is that economic degradation, following the sovereign default and devaluation of the ruble in 1998, that actually wasn't the priority. That wasn't at the top of the agenda. There were more pressing things that Putin had to worry about. And this explains why, when we go back 10 years, Russia looks quite insular 
it looks quite focused on itself. When we think about the tremendous security risks and risks to not just the capacity but the integrity of the Russian state that we were dealing with 10 years ago, the picture looks even more dramatic. I'm talking here about Chechnya. I'm talking here about the war which 10 years ago was grinding on and on and looked like there was no end in sight. And there seemed to be a very real risk of secession of the establishment of a caliphate along Russia's southern border. I'm talking also about so-called loose nukes and the security or rather the insecurity of Russia's nuclear arsenal. I'm talking about even a good old-fashioned military coup, which, you know, you go back 10 years and you look at respected uh, Western academic articles and you look at Russian Academy of Sciences publications and things like that, and this is what people were talking about. This is what people were worrying about in Russia 10 years ago, and this is what Russia watchers such as myself were worrying about. So when we think about where Russia is today compared to where it was 10 years ago, I mean, look, we all know the horror stories. And again, we all know the nightmare stories of businesses that have had terrible times in Russia. But it also makes sense to keep in mind how many bullets, how many disasters Russia has dodged. And let's be frank here, not all of these were because of prudent policy. Some of them were simply because of blind luck. So there are a few signposts that I'd like to throw out there for further discussion about where Russia is going. Well, I'll start with a fake signpost, and then I'll start with a screamingly, and then I'll go into a screamingly obvious one that nonetheless needs to be noted. But let's tackle this fake signpost first. And the fake signpost is the Putin versus Medvedev question. And which one of them is going to be sitting in the Kremlin after the March 2012 presidential election? It just doesn't matter that much. Which isn't to say that the question is irrelevant, but it is to say, you know, and this is an old joke now, the joke is that there's a Medvedev team and there's a Putin team and Medvedev's on the Putin team. But there just isn't that much distance between the two of them, certainly not enough to alter Russia's development trajectory over the next 10 years. So let's dispense with that. Onto the screamingly obvious but still noteworthy signpost is, of course, oil and gas prices. As I said, Rising or at least steady plateau of oil and gas prices are absolutely essential to the continued success of the Russian economy. There is every reason to be skeptical about Medvedev's modernization agenda and about his ability to diversify the economy away from natural resources and particularly away from oil and gas. So obviously, you know, let's be honest, if the oil price collapses, which admittedly looks very unlikely right now, but if the oil price collapses, the Russians are perfectly screwed. This is why there were such incredibly anxious statements coming out of Moscow when it was announced last week that strategic reserves of oil would be released. They freaked. They absolutely freaked. Because again, the idea of an oil price collapse is something that is inimical to continued Russian growth. And the Russian authorities are aware of that. But let's move on to the three signposts that again might not be quite as obvious. The first is an experiment in governance that's being conducted in the Russian Republic of Ingushetia, which is right next door to Chechnya, which, again, is stable, but certainly far from pluralistic and certainly far from where many of us would like it to be. There is an experiment in governance going on in Ingushetia in terms of trying to make that regional government a little bit more pluralistic, trying to make it a little bit more open to the traditional societal structures that have existed there 
for hundreds if not thousands of years. It's too early to tell whether this is going to be a success. The president of Ingushetia, who has just been in office for a couple of years, has made some very powerful enemies and nearly gotten himself killed, quite literally. But if we look at where the North Caucasus, which is, of course, Russia's Achilles heel, if we look at where that's going, we need to keep an eye on the Ingushetia experiment to get a sense of where Russia sees the North Caucasus evolving and whether it can manage the extraordinary ethnic and sectarian problems that persist in that part of the country. The second thing we need to keep an eye on is pensions. Russia has got a serious pensions crisis building and that may actually come to a head in the not too distant future, like maybe four or five years down the road. We look at Russia's sovereign debt position today and it looks fantastic. Sovereign debt is minimal. But we look at the size of the Russian pension fund, which is also minimal. And then we look at demographic trends, such as the fact that while life expectancy for Russian men is still abysmally low, that's not the case for Russian women. And the average Russian woman lives long enough now to receive a pension for 19 years. It becomes clear that that system is unsustainable. The third signpost in terms of where Russia is going actually isn't in Russia. It's just slightly to the west in Ukraine. Crunch time is coming up for the Russia-Ukraine relationship. The president of Ukraine has proven that he is not going to subordinate Ukraine's interest to Moscow. And indeed, we're looking within the next couple of years at the possibility of an association agreement and a deep free trade agreement between Ukraine and the EU. We're also looking, we're also seeing Ukraine selling some very sophisticated weapons technologies to China, technologies that Russia has not wanted to sell because it regards China as a security threat, about which more in a moment, if you'd like. So how Russia reacts to that? How Russia deals with Ukraine, its most important former Soviet occasional ally, strategic partner, to use the terminology that's favored in Moscow, is an important indication not just of that relationship, but of how Russia is going to deal with, again, what it calls the near abroad, and whether it can transition away from some of the proprietary relationships, let's say, that it has had, or at least that it has sought to have with those states over the last 10 years. Just to conclude, I would like to caution against a couple of tropes. It's so easy to fall back into the Cold War thinking that Russia is both incredibly powerful and about to take over the world, and at the same time is incredibly weak and about to collapse. Those understandings didn't serve us particularly well during the Cold War, and they're not serving us any better now. So again, just to conclude, I would say that what is needed here is to look at Russia with a cautious and with an objective eye, and with a sense that castigating Russia on moral or other normative grounds not only does Russia a disservice, but it does us a disservice. We do a disservice to ourselves in not being able to take that step back and look at where Russia was, where it is now, and where it is going in the next 10 years. Thank you. So thank, thank you very much. I know, I know we have, we have uh, had a very interesting exchange. Uh, I very much hope you enjoyed this discussion this evening. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud.
If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.